This is Tax Chats. Hello, I'm Scott Dyring. And I am Jeff Hoops. And we're here to chat about taxes. Hello and welcome to Tax Chats. I'm Scott Dyring and it's great to be with you again for another episode. Today we're going to be talking about ignoring scoring and why that might be abhorring. So if you have no idea what that means, we're going to talk about scoring uh, tax bills and other congressional um, initiatives. And what you may not know, or maybe you do know, but you don't know much about it, every time uh, some kind of a bill is introduced to Congress that has something to do with finances of the country, raising revenue through tax or something like that, a score is created by the Joint Committee on Taxation, and that score tells something about how much money this will cost or how much money it will raise. And it's a, it's a kind of an interesting and somewhat opaque process. It's also very poorly understood, including by me, which is why I have Jeff here to help me. I would, I would say it's extremely poorly understood, not only understood, but understood just how important it is. Um, I'm starting to gain an appreciation for how important it is. I mean, for example, here's at, uh, something that happened recently in the last few months. So President Biden came out with his taxing book income, num- a revenue number, and the number of firms subject to it. I wanted to try to replicate the number and sub- replicate the number of firms uh, involved. I found the person at the Treasury Department who is actually responsible for the number of firms. Actually, had their email address. I emailed and said, "Can you just provide a little bit of a little bit of help here?" Basically, nothing. Several emails back and forth, um, and I couldn't even get literally the the year that they were using as their baseline. So that number, especially if you've said you're going to do something revenue neutral, is incredibly important, and yet we don't really appreciate where it comes from, how complicated it is. I mean, we just like take it as the truth. It falls from heaven and it's true, but there's a lot in there. And so what we've done is we invited uh, the person Scott and I know who knows the most about scoring, Professor John Barrick. So as an introduction, Professor John Barrick earned his PhD from the University of Nebraska. He's been at BYU since 2000 when I was in high school. From 2007 to 2009, he worked for the U.S. Congress as a legislative accountant at the Joint Committee on Taxation. He's the author of the very popular textbook, McGraw-Hill's, uh, here it is, Taxation of Individuals and Business Entities. It's a very, very thick book that is the leading individual or leading introductory uh, tax textbook that there is. Uh, he's a co-author on that book. He's also a licensed international biathlon official, meaning that he can help run biathlons, that's Nordic skiing and shooting, at the same time uh, all over the world, which is pretty exciting. On a personal note, uh, I have known John for quite some time now. My my first kind of strong recollection of him is is when I was a student at BYU, they had this day where they basically said you can you can study taxes or managerial accounting or all these different things, and it was John's job to stand up and try to convince everybody to study taxes, and he stood up and he started out by literally saying taxes are sexy, taxes are sexy. 
And uh, it stuck with me. In fact, a few years ago, my, my daughter was learning to um, stitch on the thing. She said, what should I stitch? And I told her to stitch, taxes are sexy. For you podcast listeners out there, I'm holding up a little thing that says taxes are sexy. And moreover than just learning about taxes are sexy, it's from John Barrick that I learned that if you, you don't have to like pretend to be bored by taxes. You can be really excited about them because they're pretty exciting, pretty interesting, and pretty important. And so broadcasting here from the Tax Museum, which is like a museum to the amazingness of taxes, we're here to talk with John Barrick. All right. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, John, it's great to, great to have you. And uh, it's good to have somebody that we know that knows more about this process than Jeff and I do because we don't know as much as we should. Yeah, and I'd like to know more, um, but I know a fair bit. So, so I'll, I'll be happy to share what I do know. Well, why don't you start us off by just telling us what is scoring, how, kind of who does it, kind of the basics, how does it take place? Sure. So revenue scoring or scoring is a process, um, and you did a great job on the introduction there, Scott, to, to estimate the change in revenues from what is current baseline law versus if a tax change is implemented, either trying to raise or lower revenue, what the change in revenues will be. And the key is that it's a change. So it's two scores. It's, a, it's the current baseline score against the revised or amended score. And that difference is the change of increase or decrease that um, the Joint Committee on Taxation, the JCT, expects. Now, the one thing I will say is I'll expand it a little bit. When we talk about scoring, we should talk about both the Congressional Budget Office as well as the Joint Committee because they work together. So the Congressional Budget Office scores everything the U.S. Congress except for taxes, and the Joint Committee scores everything that is taxes. But they are inter interrelated because the Congressional Budget Office gives us the baseline, um, which is their macroeconomic model, which predicts forecasted revenues and, and expenses for the economy as a whole, and the Joint Committee uses that in their models to estimate, um, or to make their estimates. Now, when you, say, when you say revenue, you mean they're estimating how much, for example, business income there will be, and so then, you know, you want to change the tax rate, you're going to apply that new tax rate up against that new income. Yep, that's exactly right. So if we want to, you know, if we want to raise corporate revenues, right, let's just stick with corporations, even though that's a small piece of the overall tax revenue pie, right? Individuals is where the real money is. But, you know, corporations are often easy to, to criticize because they're big and they have, you know, billions of dollars of revenue. So let's go after them, right? They're the boogeyman. They're the bad guys. And so, um, you know, so, uh, yeah, what would be the change if we if we reduce the corporate income tax rate from 21% to some higher number. Um, although we know that, you know, Senator Sinema is against rate changes and that's been, you know, creating a lot of problems in the Build Back Better proposals that are out there. But, the you know, so the JCT's job, one of their, you know, they have several um, jobs, but the, the most famous is probably the revenue scoring. Okay, so and let so, me let me ask you another uh, yep, kind of sure, follow-up sure. question. It seems like it's always done over 10 years is that like a random number why 10 or is that somehow they always do it 10 is it sometimes five how does that work yeah so that's a great question so um, con um congress passes um budget restrictions and the budgetary rules and that's a little bit outside of my purview but the budgetary rules require a revenue estimate whether it's cbo or joint joint committee jct that they score individually um, for 10 years, they also require a five and a 10 year estimate. 
So these are point estimates year by year for 10 years with a five and a 10 year summary window. So usually when we talk about the score, we're talking about the 10 year summer, summary of, of a provision, whether that's a revenue raiser or, or revenue you know, cost. Oh. So recently we saw a $1.1 trillion uh, infrastructure bill that was recently passed that had a little bit of tax, right? Some cryptocurrency and some, you know, some tax credit issues. But the Build Back Better, right, is, you know, a large bill that has lots of infrastructure or lots of infrastructure, lots of lots of other social provisions, and they need revenue and under the budget window. So when a budget resolution is passed, they set a limit that can be passed under it. And, and so budget resolutions have a 10 year period in which the provisions all have to expire by. But almost everything's done on our budget resolution because Congress can't get a, around a, the filibuster or cloture in the U.S. Senate without um, without a budget resolution. So almost every significant bill in the last dec two decades is passed under resolution. So, so when you say a budget resolution, that's that's the rules are such that you only need 50 votes to pass a budget resolution, whereas you need 60 to do something else. So for example, they did they did that's infrastructure right. with 60 or more votes. They did uh, they will hope to pass the BBB under. The budget rules under a budget resolution because yep. they won't get enough republican votes to get above the 60 votes required for cloture which limits the debate for purposes of you know the filibuster uh, okay how, so here's sorry. another really another really basic question uh who who are these people who the work revenue at, scorers yeah who are the revenue scorers that work for cbo yeah. or jct so the joint committee, let's just talk about the joint committee. Uh, the, you know, the CBO has way more economists than the joint committee, but the joint committee has about 20 PhD economists. And, and you know, they've been there for a long time. Uh, about, you know, I, I, I reviewed the names today. So about a third of the, the revenue scores were there when I worked for Congress tw when I left 12 years ago. And these so are these are so these are like uh, not political appointments. These are like these are not a political appointments. These, yeah. So you know the revenue scores are pretty insulated, right? So we have the joint committee. They have policy staff and they have an economic staff who are the rec who are the revenue scores. And so there are about twenty PhD economists. They have a deputy chief of staff, Robert Harvey, who was there when I was there. He's over all of the revenue economists, and they average over nine years of experience. So there's about twenty of them. And they all have PhDs in economics from, you know, schools that you would recognize. They're, you know, well-trained. They attend regularly. Like if you go to National Tax Association meetings, um, they are, you know, they're regularly there. They help publish papers. They read papers. So, you know, these are public finance economists that are well-trained. They are employees. They are staff. And so, um, and they, they, don't, they don't let them out to talk to people much. So they are the back room. The policy staff meet on a regular basis with members of you know, the finance committee or the ways and means committee, their staff, other you know, leadership. And so they'll, they'll talk through a provision that's proposed. And then once, once a, re, you know, they call it a YT, a yellow ticket, which is an old reference that's no longer really in place, but they submit a, a proposal for a revenue score with legislative language. And then they are assigned a policy staff, someone like me, an accountant, an economist, or an attorney that helps write policy. And then they are also paired with a revenue scorer or an economist that is going to score that provision. 
So does one single one single person scores the one provision? It doesn't get like checked by somebody else. Or... Oh yeah, no, no. There's obviously checks and balances. So typically, but someone will be assigned to do the primary the primary revenue score, but then that'll be reviewed by other economists as well as the policy staff, and it's kind of an iterative process. I guess how so, much power would one single person to have? I mean, there's there's obviously a lot of gray area, right? Imagine something. The true cost would be like a hundred billion. It could be a hundred and fifty. It could be fifty. How much power does one single scorer have to say, uh, it's really 150? Yeah, well, probably not as much as some in the political spectrum would like to think. Um, you know, the, the other thing I will mention, you know, when we talk about the Joint Committee on Taxation, it's nonpartisan. So they, they're, they're not hired by the Democrats or the Republicans. They're an independent, nonpartisan joint. So they work for the, both the House and Senate. And they're relatively insulated um, from uh, you know, the you, political pressures that be. So they're not, now, they're nonpartisan in that they weren't appointed by a politician. Do you think if we, if we looked over the last few decades at what percentage of them voted for Democrats versus Republicans, it would be 50, 50, like it is approximately in the U S yeah, I would, I would probably argue that it's not. Um, I would probably argue that like probably most economic staffs, if you were to look at economic staffs, um, or attorneys, I, you know, but I would, guess that they would like lean liberally um but i don't think that 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 being said um the staff is super professional i mean i've worked with them i've known a number of them for a long period of time they take their job very seriously and i think that they use the best methods they know in order to revenue make revenue estimates and, but that doesn't mean it's perfect right yeah we could point out a number of revenue scores over the last couple of decades that you know have been problematic right we could go back to AJCA in 2003, um, 2004, where we had repatriation, new section 965, where com com um, companies got a reduced rate to repatriate. That was scored at like $3.3 billion, and the, and the cost was probably north of, you know, the actual cost of the government was over $10 billion. So. You know, how, do they, was, how do they, I mean, I think that brings up an interesting question. So you brought this as law where you're going to get some kind of tax deal for repatriating. Actually, let's, yeah. let's use a more current example. In the, in yeah, the Build sure. Back Better, there is this excise tax on share of purchases, right? Yes. So how do you, how do you score that, right? You're going, to, you're going to decide, you have to know how much shares are going to be, many shares are going to be repurchased. Yeah. Uh, you multiply that by whatever rate you're given. Yeah, so you're going to have to assume some behavior response. Back. Let's step, take one step back, Jeff. Okay. So what the first thing they're going to do is they're going to do a baseline, right? So they're going to estimate what share of purchases would have been under current law, given no change to the current baseline. Is, is they CBO because they're... Oh, well, the baseline would be set by CBO, like you know, overall growth trends. But the joint committee based on, you know, we're, so now we're talking corporations, so they would use their corporate model. So, so um, CBO has some model of repurchases, they say, over the next 10 no, years. Well, no, the joint committee would have that, right? Because that's the actual tax data. But they would estimate how many repurchases they think they're going to be over the 10-year budget window, given current law static, no changes, okay. right, from today. Then they're going to compare that to what you just talked about. What are repatriations going to be under, right? Share purchases. Um, this new new provision that would tax either at one percent or two percent, depending on you know uh, whether how you do use they, the House or Senate model. How do they know? 
How do they know? How do they know how share approaches are going to change? I mean, so for example, if you're using yeah. uh, the change in a corporate income tax, there's dozens of papers for the individual income tax. There's you know maybe thousands of papers that are going to give you these elasticities. You could do right. a really good job. For a tax that's never existed, how do you yeah. estimate the behavior response? Yeah. So so you know let's talk about two things. So first of all, behavioral changes have been included in all joint committee. Um, scores since 2003, but there's a new thing, right? In 2015, the House, and in 2016, the House and Senate both adopted dynamic scoring, which has kind of gone in and out of favor, that look at both macroeconomic changes and secondary changes based on, um, you know, provisions. So what, for was example, the, what was the impetus for adopting dynamic scoring? Well, so, who, who wanted to do that? Uh, the Republicans, I think, are well. Let's see. In 2015, we would have had we would have had Democrats that instituted the dynamic scoring rules. But then in 2016, right, we have a Republican president comes in that wants to you know change tax policy, and so we end up with the the Tax Cut and Jobs Act in 2000 late 2017. That bill um, ended up having about a 400 um, billion dollar change. But for because of dynamic scoring, so it would have cost I think one point. It ended up being like one point one trillion, and it was would have been one point five trillion dollar absent um, dynamic scoring. So that was a pretty large change in that they thought that uh, the, the 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 economic boost due to the provisions of the TJCA actually increased um, you know revenues you know like business and then tax revenues, which decreased the overall cost by about $400 million relative to what it would have been um, without dynamic scoring. And so I think a lot of Democrats were, you know, were upset about that. You know, both Republican Democrats like to use this as a political tool, right? Well, if we only had dynamic scoring, but then once dynamic scoring is introduced, then they're like, well, you know, so we can criticize it, whether it's static or dynamic, right? And to some extent, Dynamic allows more, right? More um, estimates to be included in the scoring than absent absent yeah. that. But the Joint Committee nor CBO makes that determination. That's a bu budgetary rule. So back to buybacks. How would you how would you estimate essentially the elasticity for something that doesn't exist in the academic literature? Yeah. So that's that's a big question. That's a big problem. So the first thing that the first thing that they're likely going to do is look to other countries that may have that. And my understanding is, and I'm not an international tax expert, but um, my understanding is there's some provisions in, in the United Kingdom or in Britain that had been that have been similar. And so they've looked at buybacks that occurred in the British system, and they're you know going to try to extrapolate those into the U.S. Tax so if, there, so if there's not a, if there was an academic paper about that, you'd use the academic paper maybe, but if not, you just essentially write your own paper yeah, with so, your own estimate. Yeah, we, we, we would, we would do some, we would do some guesstimation. Guess so, you know, some professional judgment would be exercised, but you know, like I said, I mean, these are professional public finance economists. They've read the literature. They know what's going on in the literature. They are well-read. They do co attend conferences. They know what academics are thinking. They know what, you know, professional economists are thinking, you know, one, you know, one interesting dynamic that I'll throw into the dynamic scoring model is the proliferation, uh, I can't, I can't even get out, proliferation of alternative scoring models. 
So we have the Wharton Penn model out there um, at the University of Pennsylvania. We have the Urban Brookings model. We have AEI has a, has a model. We have PwC that does revenue estimates. So we have a number of private revenue estimation that compete with the public re revenue estimates that both Congress through CBO and the Joint Committee. And so those create their own dynamic in that, well, Wharton Penn says it's gonna score as this and the Joint Committee or CBO says it scores as that. And so, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna enter that as a political. And as we know, not all, you know, some of those are left-leaning, some of those are right-leaning institutions. And so they're gonna, you know, compete with revenue scores. And that I think is also an attempt to, one is to, you know, check the independence of the, of these you know congressional scores, but two to exert political pressure on their scores. Now, when you say they're checking the independence, all they can really check is the actual answer. Is that true, or what do we know? Do we get to see how they got to the answer? Or do we just see the actual number? You just see the actual number. So you can't uh, so that, actually you know nothing about the box. methodology. Right, that's part of the black box um, of of the revenue scoring process, which is a criticism of both the Joint Committee and the CBO. Now, that being said, there's some great documents out there. If you love revenue scoring, you wanna know more about revenue scoring, Scott wants to know more about revenue scoring. The Joint Committee, every two years, and they have a 2021, I wanna say it's February, um, PowerPoint slide deck that has, you know, that's, you know, 40 slides that talks about all about their revenue estimation process, their MEG models, their you know, overlapping generational model, their individual tax model. Um, Congressional Budget Office does the same. There's some really get good stuff out by Douglas Elmendorf, who I think is at the Brookings Institution currently, the former director of CBO that talks about dynamic versus regular scoring. And so for those of you that want to know more, um, there's some really great information out there. But it is a black box. Um, the budgetary rules requires a point estimate, not a range, but a point estimate. So it's the best guess um, given all available information. But as you pointed out, Jeff, how do you score something that we have that's never been done before? Right? I mean, how, why is it a black box? I mean, it seems like we'd let the, uh, the disinfectant of sunlight come in. Transparency would shine on this and we'd all be better for it. Why, why do we keep it a black box? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I think there's multiple reasons, and I think I think there's valid reasons. Um, you know, tax has always been a way, um, has always been a, as a tool that's used to, you know, in the political process. So it goes back to, I think it was Calvin Coolidge, um, after he was elected president, started issuing tax refunds to his campaign supporters, etc. That's the whole reason the Joint Committee exists today, is that they had to audit refunds of more than a certain amount to make sure... Um, you know, there was a check and balance on the tax system. Over time, it kind of grew into now they're the professional tax advisors for the U.S. Congress. So they offer policy advice. They offer um, legislative drafting um, to both the Ways and Means and the Finance Committee. And then, like you said, the, the revenue estimation process, which is probably the most important but least understood thing that the Joint Committee does. And I think, I think by keeping it secret, or not secret, but closed doors, it prevents political pressure. That's, does, when, it's, that's when, it's, when you say it's closed doors, that means we, the public, don't see it. If a senator asks for a score of something that they're that she's thinking of doing, does she get to see the details or still just the point estimate? The point estimate. So so we started out with talking about the YT, you know, the, the, the request for a proposal. The Joint Committee, I think the record was in 2008, they got 7,000 requests for scores. 
uh, which is a lot, right? You got 20 economists. They don't fulfill all of those. They give priority to leadership and uh, members of the House Ways and Means and Senate Finance Committee, right? The tax writing committees. Uh, and then they do they do their best they do their best job to fulfill all the revenue requests. But there is a priority ranking, um, and that's proprietary as well. But but I could tell you that you know. And while I don't know the actual ranking, I can tell you that leadership and and tax writing committee, um, particularly chairman and ranking members, get scores first. And uh, those scores uh, are follow a process, but they get a letter. Um, you can find some of those online. So some of those are leaked. Some of those are disclosed on purpose. Um, and so, and then we see, you know, for example, when they when they have a a, uh, a markup, right? Uh, they'll they'll roll out a score, right, for an entire package. But usually, revenue estimates are done one, you know, one provision at a time, typically. And they'll get a score, and that score has a huge impact um, on a bill, right? Um, if it's if it if it's a cost, right? Um, if it's something, you know, let's say we want to in increase the child tax credit, right? That's a huge economic cost, so the score of that is could be rather large. Additionally, it's, a lot of times we have to have under, under a budgetary restriction, right? Under a, under a revenue reconciliation, we have to have a meet a specific targeted score. So I'm if I if I if my provisions that co cost too much, then I have to add revenue raisers to balance that out. And so uh, revenue raisers are always something that are important as well. So the amount of the amount, you know, either the cost or the amount of the revenue raiser is critically important in a package. So all right, so I'm I'm probably the most clueless about scoring which is abhorring sure. that I'm so clueless about scoring. <laughs> so let me see if I can summarize what I think I've learned. And John, you can correct me where I go wrong. Sure. So somebody in Congress, either the Senate or the House, might have an idea to raise taxes, to lower taxes, to do something. That's correct. They need to know how much that's either going to cost the government or how much it's going to bring into the government. So they roll on over to the Joint Committee. They create what I think you call the yellow ticket, but it's yep. not really, YT. it's not literally, it's not like the golden ticket in Willy Wonka, the yellow it's, ticket. It's not the golden the ticket. Yellow ticket, and, YT. And it's probably not even actually yellow anymore, but it's not yellow anymore. That's why I said it's a, it's an artifact. Okay. So but they have this. Called the YT. All right. So they got a YT, a yellow ticket, this yellow ticket, uh, then they, they get assigned this idea, which is in the yellow ticket gets assigned to some member of the JCT. Yep. So that yellow ticket will have legislative language that raise, you know, request to raise or lower taxes and they will be assigned both a policy staff and an economist. Okay. And so then the policy staff and the economist will take what's in this legislative language. They'll go they'll go compare it using information that is given to them from the CBO about economic size and growth also information from existing tax returns and all this data that they have. And they're going to say, okay, based on this language, the bill, if passed like this would generate this much revenue or lower revenue by a certain amount or whatever it is. Now, my guess is that the congressman or congresswoman, the, the representative or senator might go back and forth with these members to adjust oh, yeah. the language to make sure that they get the right number. Does that happen? Yeah, absolutely, right. So okay. Jeff just talked about about the uh, the buyback provision, right? With where we have a one percent or a two percent tax on the total amount of the of the buyback, right? Based yep. on you know. So what was what was the difference in revenue between the one and two percent, or was there a difference? 
I think you told me it's zero, Jeff, but I, I didn't know I've that. that I've heard that story that. from several people, but I can't find an official and source that says the 1% and the 2% squared I, the same. So I looked at, so yeah. Okay, I got but, a but hang on, let's not get too distracted here. And I looked and I, I want to say that it's like, you know, you know, a few billion dollars at the 1%. I haven't seen the score on the 2%, but I could look and find that out. But that, that would be interesting. So, you know, kind of back to Scott's question, let's talk about it in, in the big picture. The scores are ultimately important, right? If I come to you, if, if a congressman or a senator comes with an idea and it costs too much, we may have to modify the proposal to decrease, increase the revenue or decrease the revenue relative to what the target was expected to be at in order to be move as part of a package, right? And we've, and we've seen that explicitly, for example, with the salt cap where you know, they yes. said, we're just going to get rid of the salt cap altogether. And they yes. said, well, that'll cost way too much. And now we just have like this, this arbit it seems like an arbitrary number for what the cap will be, but where that number came from is some score that says, this is the number we need to make it cost some amount. Okay. That's so, exactly right. so they go back and forth, they get the amount that is needed to kind of make it through the legislative process. Yeah. I mean, each, and, each provision, whether it's a raiser or a revenue loser or raiser, right, is, is ticketed, yep. not ticketed, but budgeted for a certain amount in a package. And if it comes in too high or too low, the proposal has to be modified and or dropped. Okay, so, so, now, so now it's becoming apparent just how important the JCT is because this can yes. alter the legislative language of the bills. Yep. And this is so all based congressional on... Congressional scorekeepers, right? That's... Yep. that's there's their scorekeepers and it's fascinating. Okay. So now here's the next thing that is kind of amazing to me. They give a point estimate, which you talked about and not a range. And as an academic, this is sort of an astounding fact because yep. everything that we do in science, including, uh, e economics has, uh, measurement error and all kinds of other forms of error, which mean that yes. whatever estimate we come up with should really be surrounded by a confidence interval cool. where we're sort of like, uh, with, you know, we're, we're 95% certain it will be in this range, but that range can be really big. And yep. they, I guess, are not allowed to use a range. Is that correct, John? That, that is what the budget rule says. The budget rule says it shall be a point estimate. So there's so a point right. estimate. So, so you're exactly right, though. The economists, right? They're all PhD economists, trained, you know, Caltech or you know, MIT. I mean, these are really bright people. They know all about statistics. They know all about co confidence intervals. All the things that we would use in academic research. They understand all of that. But the but the budget rule says it shall be a point estimate, and they are limited to that. Now, do the private revenue estimators, like you said, the Penn Wharton budget model, do they, do any of them do ranges or do they all stick to so it's comparable? I think I've seen ranges, but I think they stick to point estimates as well because they want apples to apples um, comparison. But I, I'm sure they have point uh, a range estimates if, you know, that they could disclose. But I'm, I, I haven't spent as much time in, in you know, the, the private revenue estimation space, but I think they could provide either just as the joint committee or CBO could. So in your view, the JCT, this, I'm just asking a question. Would you yeah. consider the JCT and the CBO like extremely influential, somewhat influential, not influential at all in terms of the policies that ultimately get enacted? I would say that they're extremely influential, both the CBO and joint committee. And I think that creates 
pressure on the outside and that creates criticism. So if I am if I'm, you know, the party in power, the Democrats right now, I'm going to you know, if the score comes in too high, right? I'm going to have to cut back some of the provisions I would like to put in that package. And along with that, I'm going to criticize whether it's the Congressional Budget Office on how much the cost of the social program is or the Joint Committee on how much revenue is going to be raised in a corporate provision um, that is used to offset the cost of the, of the social package. Particularly when I have, you know, uh, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema, which we're trying to barter with as a Democratic Party, right? There's a lot of criticism there, but they're going to direct that not only at their members, but they're going to direct it at the staff. Um, yeah, it's amazing. It's really amazing because it's like most people in the world have never even heard of the Joint Committee on Taxation. They don't even know what it is. And yet it has like this surprisingly big influence on what ultimately gets passed. I was, um, I was talking with somebody recently about this who called it the, the power behind the throne. I, I like that yeah. idea. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, you know, let's let's look at the, you know, we've mentioned the BBB or the Build Back Better. Jeff brought that up earlier, right? This is a large social program package that has a large cost and needs offsets in taxes. So we had the we had the um, a green book that comes out, right? Which is a treasury estimate of those provisions. So uh, while we talked about CBO and the Joint Committee, the Office of Tax Policy and the Office of Tax Analysis, um, the Treasury the Treasury has it, administration has its own revenue estimators that exist there. So they, that's another model. And so the Joint Committee as well as the as the Office of Tax Analysis or OTA, they often compare notes and they both have IRS data. They don't always agree, but they usually have a dialogue where they try to resolve differences and 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 you know and, and come to a conclusion. So, wow, so much so much going on. Um, lots going on. Way way more than we can cover in our allotted thirty minutes, which have quickly uh, come to an end. Uh, Jeff, any any last questions? I think nothing that we could cover that wouldn't take another half hour. There's a, there's a lot here, though. Another half hour and another half hour. John, any last words? Um, you know, hopefully, hopefully, you know, what we've talked about is a little bit interesting and, and, and insightful. There's lots of good opportunities to learn about some of these, like I mentioned, both the G JCT and the CBO, as well as Brookings and other people have, um, you know, documents on the revenue estimation process if you want to learn more. So so hang on just a minute. If somebody's interested, they could go to like jointcommittee-on-taxation.com or like where JCT. is that? jct.gov. jct.gov. And you and can find... Likely post, we could likely post those on the show notes. cbo.gov and um, or just enter in Google JCT or CBO and revenue estimation and you'll find more resources than you would like to read probably. Well, that's yeah, super helpful, and we'll we'll put some links down in the in the notes to the show, and people can look there. Uh, thank you all for listening, John. Thanks so much for joining us. For all, it's you know, John has been a mentor to Jeff and I for years. We've known him both for many many years, and it's great to have you join us. So thank you so much, John. Uh, sometimes we'll, the former students become the experts. Some, so. some sometimes uh, sometimes that's true. I'm not sure we've quite reached the. Uh, scoring expertise. Maybe not have. on revenue estimation. That's so. right. <laughs> all right. Thanks Thank, for your time. Thanks so much, John. We'll, right. we'll see you all later and goodbye. Goodbye.